You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The scripture passage is Matthew chapter 8. If you want to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8, in the Bibles that are at the, your feet, that is page 763, 763. As I come over to the correct place for scripture reading. As you're turning to page 763 on Matthew 8, verse 18, I did forget to mention that um, I teach, this is my 10th year teaching at Veritas, but I also teach alongside Mr. Brandon Williams and Mr. Kevin Gray and Mr. Austin Anderson and Mrs. DeRose. And so our principal uh, calls this year the year of the Free City Takeover, which is as it should be. So praise the Lord for uh, the fellowship in that ministry this year. Uh, Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 27. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this day and the grace in which we stand. Thank you for the chance to come together and worship you in spirit and in truth because of what you accomplished for us in Christ. Thank you for this place. Thank you for Central and their hospitality to us. We pray for blessing on this school. We pray for those administrators and faculty and staff and students who know you that you would strengthen their faith, fill them with your spirit to speak the truth and love and build up each other's faith, that they would live salty and gracious lives as you seek and save the lost. We pray that for Veritas. We pray that for all the schools in this city, for all the businesses, all, all the homes, this whole city, this state, this nation, all the nations of the earth. You are worthy of it all. Thank you for JP and for Feed My Starving Children and all the good work that they are doing. I pray that you would stir hearts to give generously, freely, cheerfully, and to get in on the joy of feeding your children around the world. We pray that uh, you would deliver the gospel with this food in power, 
Pray that these children and their families will come to know you. Not just be fed temporarily, but eternally. Thank you for this word from your gospel. Please anoint the preacher and well up your anointing in us to hear with faith. Put us in awe of Jesus today and make us more like him. Happiest in doing your will. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. For your name's sake, amen. <clears throat> well, good morning. My name's Casey. I'm one of uh, the pastors here, and uh, man, we're glad you're with us. And uh, man, that's my third or fourth time to see that video. And I cry every time, man. I see that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, when you see that girl, and she's, oh, man, I, uh, yeah. So um, it makes me want to uh, pack some stuff together. And, uh, man, we want you to get involved in that. And, you know, that, that piece of, of give, recruit, uh, and come and serve like a, a lot of us are connected to different organizations, whether that's a team or a workplace or whether that's a fraternity or sorority. Man, what an opportunity to say, hey, that's come together to recruit. Uh, a lot of people can agree that uh, kids uh, should have food. And so like if you find someone who disagrees with that, man, pr pray for them. Um, they, they shouldn't disagree with that. And so, man, like that really recruit piece. And then there's something else. Uh, and so you've probably seen some uh, in the newsletter. Um, if you don't get that, that's the way we disseminate information. And then maybe some on social media where uh, we have uh, Insights uh, uh, 5K race uh, coming up. And uh, it's just really, really important to me that we're the fastest church. So you need to start training now. Um, I don't know why that feels so important to me. Uh, but, and you know what I mean? Jesus loves slow people too. He loves me. He loves us. Uh, but you can sign up and you can run and you can come dead last or you can sign up and you can run and you can win it or you can sign up and you can start the race, ditch out early with a fake hammy injury and still raise money uh, for something that empowers women um, and promotes life. And uh, so that's something else you can recruit for. You don't have to be a runner. Um, but, uh, man, these are opportunities that we can uh, give into our community and give beyond our community and uh, just try to live out. Man, Jesus said to his disciples, he says, hey, when you gave, uh, when you fed me and gave me something to drink, uh, when you visited me in prison, and they're like, man, we didn't even know we did that. Where, who were you? And he says, whenever you did it for the least of these, you did it for me. And so uh, you may hate running, but you can run for Jesus. Um, and so these are opportunities. You know, as we are, as we're in Matthew, uh, we're back in Matthew again, man, we're kind of looking at a lot of questions. And some of those questions are just like, man, what was Jesus like? Like, like what did he do? Like, you might be here and, man, you kind of maybe grew up a little bit around the church, but you're not really for sure. You've heard about Jesus. You understand that Christmas comes and we kind of celebrate his birth. And maybe you watched uh, South Park growing up where, you know, Jesus would have the fight with Santa Claus, you know, for who could win. And, and so like you're kind of an idea about what Jesus was like, 
but you've never really looked in to see what Jesus is actually like. And you maybe heard that Jesus died for the consequences of our sin, atoning for us so that you could have eternal life. And maybe, you know, watching football like most of us will be doing this afternoon, if not all of us, like you've seen like signs of John 3, 16, and you might even know that verse. And you might have an understanding of Jesus' died. but why did Jesus die? What did Jesus do? Why did he die? What did he teach? Does it even matter? Why are we talking about him still? Well, so Matthew, the the former tax collector, he takes into account all these things and he organizes a gospel to say, I want you to know all that Jesus fulfilled for you because you never could fulfill on your own. And so he uses that word fulfill more than any other gospel writer combined. He comes constantly and he's saying, this was done to fulfill. And then he kind of throws something in there. And what he's saying is throughout the history of the scriptures, we follow the people of Israel who were claimed by God, who constantly fell short, constantly fell short. And Jesus stands in their place where they fell short and he stands in our place to fulfill what you could never accomplish so that you could live before the face of God again. And and so, so we get here and so it's like, okay, what is Jesus doing now? And Jesus is recruiting people, he's recruiting disciples and he is building this huge movement. Like, I mean, he is building this big movement And all of a sudden he gets tired and he's like, man, he goes to the disciples, the the 12, and he says, man, let's cross over into the foreign lands. And all of a sudden we see these different people come to him and say, I will follow you. And he has really harsh things to say to them. Like, actually, the, I think the connecting idea in Matthew 8, in this section, that connects these two, is a discipleship language. Like, it kind of sets the course, and the disciples and potential disciples decide if they will follow or not. And it's not just true for them, it's also true for us. And so look at some of these words. These are discipleship words. Like we see in verse 19, it says, I will follow you. If you step in to become a disciple of Jesus, you are following Jesus. Verse 21, look, it says, another one of the disciples. And so this is outside of the 12, but another one who is following Jesus. And then you keep going, like both of these are discipleship words. We see both of them together in verse 23, where it says, the disciples followed him. And so follow and disciple, discipleship words. I know right now you're like, man... You are quite the biblical scholar, you know. But what's putting this together is then we also see other words. Look at verse 19 and 21. We see teacher. We see Lord. A part of being a disciple is getting underneath someone and they can direct your life as they see fit. They start to say, this is where we're going to go. And then the next scene, so we first have this questioning scene of, you know, I want to follow you. Jesus says some disparaging things of what it's going to cost him. And then the disciples get in the boat and they find a disparaging environment that scares them to death. And so we see them coming under Jesus and following Jesus. Two presumably walk away. Matthew doesn't actually say they walk away, but we know they don't get in the boat. But there's things about discipleship that cause us to fear. 
We actually see that in this section. And so like it brings questions like, man, what can you expect when you follow Jesus away from the crowd? What can you expect when Jesus leads you away from the shores of your comfort, what's familiar, what gives you assurance, and he leads you into uncertain waters? Like what can you expect if Jesus leads you away from what you know? It's actually that word, like you see that word, we see it in verse 19. Uh, this verb, it's kind of not translated like it, but it says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. It's actually, I will follow you in your going away. Wherever you lead away, I'm going to follow you. And then we see it again in verse 21. It says, you know, in the excuse when he says, listen, uh, the other guy comes up, the other potential disciple comes up and says, I'll follow after you, but first let me go bury my father. It actually says, Lord, first let me go away and bury my father. And so it brings us to this crossroad of either Jesus has the right to lead you away from the shores of your comfort or something else is leading you away from the confidence of his calling. And so when we get to this, I just want to, I want to have three pictures, actually three crises. And it was really confusing to me on what the plural form of crisis is because it's ES and crisis is IS. But three crises and so first we see a crisis in discipleship. Then we're going to look at the crisis of the storm. And then we're going to look at the very crisis of Jesus, Lord, God with us in himself. And so look at verse 18. It says, now when, this, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Verse 21, another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. And so first, like the, the, the crisis with discipleship. Like Jesus doesn't offer the assurances that we want. And so the first scene has two people coming to him. And so the first is a scribe and then an unnamed disciple. They come to Jesus and that, that almost sounds like a joke. A scribe and a disciple walk into a bar so we know they weren't Baptists. And so, I mean, a scribe and a disciple. And so a scribe and disciple, like they, they walk up to Jesus and they say, I'm ready to follow you away wherever you might go. Wherever you go, I'm ready to follow. And Jesus, he says, okay, but let me tell you what it's going to be like. Like Matthew doesn't explicitly tell us that they walk away, but we know they don't get in the boat. And so the implied conclusion is they wanted more assurances than what Jesus was giving them. They wanted to follow Jesus with certain conditions, certain outcomes. They had an idea of, listen, I'm willing to follow you in this contract, but there are things out of bounds of that contract. And so Jesus, looking at both of these guys, tells them, the conditions to which they're going to follow him, and they don't want to hear those conditions. And he says different things to them. And so it's almost like he looks inside their soul, and he sees what is gripping their heart, the Titus, and he says, sure, you can follow me, but the first thing you have to do is give me that. 
Give me the thing that holds your heart the tightest, the thing that you most put, like that you put most of your assurances in. Give me that thing and follow me. And so let's look at the first one. And so the first is a scribe. And Jesus leads us into discomfort. Like Jesus looks at the scribe and he says, I'm going to lead you into something that lacks comfort. It's going to be uncomfortable. And so verse 18 again, it says this. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, scribes were kind of like heavy hitters in, in the Jewish culture of the first century. They were really respected. Uh, they were like the Ivy League, classically trained intellects of the day. Like they would have been somewhat revered. And sometimes they knew it. Sometimes they were very sure of who they were. And so like maybe he was looking at the boat that Jesus was getting into and he said, man, Jesus, you need someone like me. Like looking at the boat, like I see like you've got some fishermen, <clears throat> you've got some former lepers, I won't sit by him. Maybe you've got a tax collector, I won't sit by them either. Maybe you've got some demon, you know, formerly demon-possessed women you know, on the team, I don't really want to sit by them either. You probably need someone like me. Do you have a scribe yet? And so even like in this moment, like this is, this is, this is odd. Like, most of scribes didn't like Jesus a whole lot. Like, this is out of character. Most of scribes, like we read about in the Bible, responded to Jesus with an overall tone of, like, disapproval. Like, over and over, they would fight about minutiae, like different things about the law, usually about Sabbath controversies. Like, you can't do that on the Sabbath. Like, they would fight about him. Jesus would make them look dumb, and then they would run away and come up with something else. So they didn't like him. But this... This scribe says, teacher, I want to go with you. And Jesus looks at him and says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Nowhere to lay his head. You know, it, it, it just sounds uncomfortable. Like it sounds like you might have to camp for the rest of your life. And people act like they love camping, but I'm not convinced. I feel like camping is uh, cooler to talk about that you did than actually to do it. And so it was like uh, two summers ago, we went camping and my kids loved it. They were like, oh, this is awesome. This is great. But they don't have enough body weight to hurt from being on the ground. And so they, 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 so many things they loved, like we were with cousins, we jumped off a cliff into a river, Oklahoma River, so it's kind of mud. Uh, we swung off a huge rope into the same river, we ate stuff off the fire, but we also slept in a tent and it also rained on us, and Kinsey and I slept on an air mattress that leaked, and so I'm heavier, so all through the night I went down into the rocks and she lifted up like a heavenly being and I woke up with my head on the rocks, and I can tell you it is not a comfortable place to be. And people always talk about camping like, oh, man, the best thing is the morning. And the reason the best time is the morning is because the night is over. <laughs> and so Jesus looks at him, and he says, listen, I can't guarantee you the home that you're used to. I can't guarantee you the comforts of knowing the streets at which you live. I can't guarantee what you're used to. I certainly can't guarantee like a book deal for you, scribe. 
You just have to make a decision if you want to follow me no matter what follows, no matter what comes. And so Jesus said to the scribe, follow me. It will not guarantee any levels of comfort or any professional esteem. He says, follow me. It may limit your professional track. It may limit you feeling safe. Like He's like, I'm not even going to guarantee you a bed or anything else. He says, follow me and I will decide where you live and how you roll. It might cost you promotions. It might cost you social clout. It might make you lose job opportunities. And then he says this. He says, your education, or I think this is what's going on, your education has captured the revere of others, but I'm the son of man and I have nowhere to lay my head. Like that term, the son of man, is Jesus' favorite title of himself. And it's drawing not just like a humanity, like to say, hey, I'm also man. It's drawing from Daniel 7, Daniel's vision, where he sees this heavenly figure, but it's in the likeness of a son of man. And then he describes what that heavenly figure, that son of man has. And it says he has all authority over a kingdom that can never be destroyed. And so Jesus says, as the son of man with all authority over a kingdom that I'm establishing and can never, ever be destroyed, I'm not even guaranteed a place to rest my head. I have all authority. Follow me. You know, so the, the first, like following Jesus, I'm, I'm going to say it will cost you comfort, but it might cost you more than that. Like the next thing we see in verse 21 and 22, like Jesus can lead us into disapproval. Look at verse 21. It says, another of the disciples. So this is someone who's been following. You have the disciples. You've got John, like the favorite, you know, he's like, oh, John the favorite. You've got John the favorite. Then you've got the three. They always get into the small room, Peter, James, and John. And then you've got the 12. They can fit in the boat or the the excursion, if you will. And so they get to go along all the time. And then you have these other groups. You know, you have like the, the, the 72 and the 144. And at this time, you have a multitude of people following. And so this is someone who says, I'm here to follow after Jesus. And so he says, another one of the disciples said to him, Lord, I want to follow you. But first, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead and you read that and you're like, dang, Jesus. I mean, gosh, it's like cold and callous. You're kind of getting chippy. Like, uh, man, you've been teaching a long time. Are you hungry? Blood sugar kind of low? Like, it kind of sounds chippy. At, at first look, it might sound like this guy's dad just died and he's like, man, I got to go home and, and just bury him. But every commentary I looked at said that is not likely at all. Every commentary said if his dad would have just died, like the Jewish custom of this day was to bury the dead within 24 hours or the same day that they died. And then usually there's like a week of like festivities or a week of a wake, if you will, that kind of follows, but different things that follow. And so if his dad just died, he wouldn't have been there. Like mo most scholars think he's asking to postpone following Jesus until his aging parents are gone. Uh, Kenneth E. Bailey, uh, he's got several books. Uh, one great book is Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. He spent 40 years uh, teaching the Bible uh, in, in the Middle East, in Egypt, Lebanon, Palestine, Israel, etc. And so he says, burying one's father is a standard idiom for fulfilling one's filial responsibility for the remainder of the father and mother's lifetime. 
It is saying, my parents are aging and it is my duty to care for them. I will follow you when I don't have other duties to neglect. And man, he felt the cost of what Jesus was saying. Like, let the, bed, let the dead bury their dead. He's like, choose me over them. Like, choose me over those responsibilities. And it could cost him. Like, it might cost him financially. Like, he might disappoint his parents. He'd cut out of the inheritance. And so in one way, it's like, man, I might be so much more useful if I get this inheritance. And then I can kind of fund my own ministry. Or it might cost him relationally. His parents might not understand and be hurt. And they might cut him off emotionally. You know, we, we've got, uh, for sure, two baptism services coming up. And so we're baptizing, I think it's March 5th, and then we're going to baptize April 9th, if that's Easter. But we might actually baptize uh, the last Sunday in February because, you know, we're trying to work it out. So if you have questions about baptism, you need to get on the baptism train. But sometimes it's scary because, man, I kind of grew up in church, but I missed the gospel. And now the gospel has captured my heart, and I'm afraid it's going to communicate to my parents, I don't love them. A lot of people can relate to that. But it it certainly was going to cost him socially. In this this culture, in a family-first, community-first, shame-driven culture, to turn your back on, on your parents in their time of need is certainly a reckless ministry move. And Jesus's demand cut across cultural expectations. There would have been lots of people who said, that's not right. And so the Bible teaches that following Jesus, like it's not as simple as saying, man, I'm just going to change my voter card. It's more like crossing from death to life in a completely new allegiance. And sometimes in Luke 12, we learn that it divides homes, father, son, mother, daughter, brother, sister, friend. Oh, it's so sad. <laughs> um, not, I didn't mean your family. I meant someone else. Uh, so first, like following Jesus will cost you comforts. Following Jesus will cost you approval. And then the third thing, Jesus leads into scary and uncertain. He leads into the scary and uncertain. And so we see the disciples actually follow through. And so look at verse 23. It says, and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. Like, like Jesus is still leading like a disciple. Like, do you see those words? Like, disciple, followed. And so Jesus is leading. He says, get in the boat. We're going to cross over to the Gerasene area, a place of the four, and we're going to try to, I have ministry that needs to happen over there. We're going to go through the sea. These are experienced fishermen. They understood what it was like, so they got in the boat, and they start to cross the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus leads them into a terrifying storm. Matter of fact, the words Matthew uses for great storm, it's megas seismos. It's where we get the, it actually means big earthquake. It's where we get the word for seismograph. And so he's saying, man, it wasn't just a storm. It was this earth-shaking kind of storm, something that stood out in their mind as not normal. Matthew goes on. He uses in Matthew 24 and then uh, in Matthew 28, he uses this word again. He uses other words to describe storms. He uses this word to describe almost like this apocalyptic upheaval. And so most scholars 
they usually connect this account with the, what we're going to look at next week, the casting out of demons of the demoniacs. They connect them because there's this like uh, demon casting out supernatural language that's used because he stands up and he rebukes the wind. And then next he rebukes the demons that are in these two guys. And so they connect those. There was something about this storm that was especially scary. It was a terrifying experience for even fishermen who grew up on the water. When uh, last summer we went to Puerto Rico uh, with my family, and uh, so we went to the beach, and some of you guys are like, oh, it's great. I don't really love the beach because I have to put sunscreen on like every 30 minutes. Um, I feel like the sun's trying to kill me. But uh, we, were, we were going to the beach, but our phones warned us, gave us this warning about riptide in the area. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but we live in Kansas, and so we don't know a lot about the ocean and what it was describing was certain death for our entire family. Like you could be on the sand and somehow the ocean would reach up and grab you and drag you under to destroy you and your family. And so like some of us were kind of uneasy. Like I don't know what that is. Now I, I wasn't super uneasy because I just assume everything's going to be fine because that's how I want it. But I was convinced to ask some locals uh, if we should be worried about this warning. And so I went, we went down to the beach and there was a lifeguard and I was like, hey man, is it gonna be like high riptide? And he just looked at me like, I don't know what you just talked about. Is that like a surfing brand? And I was like, no, no, you know, riptide. And he's like, I don't know. What. So I showed him the warning and he goes, yeah, 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 no problem. And that's it. That's what we got. And so I came back to report like, hey, is it dangerous? No problem. It's no problem. And so like, it, it's kind of like this, like, when people move to Kansas and they hear the tornado sirens for the first time and they're kind of panicking a little bit because they don't know what's going on, then they're really confused when you kind of casually walk out to get a better look at it, you know, I mean. <laughs> and so it's like, it's new and it's scary. And so like there's something about this that is not normal to them that's especially terrifying for seasoned fishermen they recount this storm as something especially scary. Jesus will lead you into discomfort. Following Jesus will lead you into disapproval. And Jesus will lead you into terrifying scenarios and storms that will certainly show that you're too small to handle them. And he says, will you follow me? You see, a lot of times how we respond to that is, yes, Jesus, I will follow you if. And then we say something to, I will follow you if I can have this kind of life in this kind of place. Or I will follow you if, like, if my relationships, my marriage, or my family can look a certain way. Or I'll follow you if, if my community looks a certain way. Or I'll follow you if, if my portfolio or my career looks a certain way. Like, we have this if, I will follow you if, like, it's in our heart. We all have it. And what Jesus is doing is he's saying, whatever follows that if is what you look to for salvation. It's what you look to to keep you safe. And I came to be your salvation. And so I might have a seismic effect on what grips your heart. And so following after Jesus, like following after Jesus, the call of discipleship, there is a crisis of what am I going to hang on to? And we see it 
in the scribe. We see it in the unnamed disciple. Then we see it in this terrifying event. The disciples have Jesus with them in the boat, and they are terrified of the storm. And so that brings us to the second shorter point, so have hope, where it says this, the crisis in the storm. And and the crisis in the storm is sometimes it seems like Jesus is asleep, and here, because he was actually asleep, it seemed like Jesus was asleep. And so look at verse 24, it says, And behold, there was a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he, Jesus, was asleep. Like, you see the problem, like, Like, they're about to drown, and Jesus is sleeping. It's kind of frustrating, maybe even infuriating. Like, when you're freaking out, and someone is, like, really calm, like, you don't like that. Like, when you're freaking out, you want some affirmation from some other freak out around you, even though that doesn't help anything, but it makes you feel normal. And so Jesus was not freaking out. Like, like, like you can take this two ways. Some people talk about, like, okay, uh, Jesus was human, and so he was tired. Like, he just finished preaching a sermon that took us an entire semester to get through, and so he was tired. Uh, or, like, he just healed, like, a whole village. Like, I mean, I've never done that. that probably, you're probably tired after that. you got to hydrate. Like, he was tired. Um, but they also talk about, like, Jesus' absolute control. Like, he wasn't worried. Like, he, what, this storm didn't worry him. So he could sleep like a baby, which is a funny statement if you have a brand new baby, because they just sometimes don't sleep at all. But he could sleep like a baby in the midst of this, and I think both are true. This storm was nothing, as we'll soon learn for Jesus. He wasn't worried. Jesus got tired, which I just want to, like, like, put this in parentheses. Ministry gets done with tired people. Like, it just, it, like, ministry, ha- like, you don't, like, oh, man, I feel like Superman today. Let's do something. Like, sometimes Jesus says, hey, I know you're tired. I know, man, maybe you get a nap later, but, you know, come on. And so, like, it gets done with tired people. But have you ever felt in a moment of seismic proportion, in a moment where it seems like the foundations of your life are quaking, have you ever felt like Jesus must be asleep? Like, like I, you are overcome and you are drowning in what is all around you and you are bailing water as fast as you can out of the boat and you are falling behind and you're like, Jesus, could you help me a little bit? And your only conclusion is he either doesn't care or he can't see because it feels like he is absent outside of the boat of your life. Do you ever feel like that? Like, if you do, you probably feel like what the disciples felt like. Like, look look at verse 25. And they went and woke him up saying, save us, Lord. We are perishing. And I actually like how how Mark tells this story. And so in Mark chapter 4, verse 38, he says, teacher, do you not care that we are dying? Do you even care? Like, do you care that we're suffering? Do you care that we're scared to death? Do you care? Like, I hope you enjoy your little cat nap. My life is falling apart and it feels like you're sleeping. You told us to cross the lake. You asked us to do this and we are here because we followed you. Do you even care? Are you even aware? Have the crises in your life ever raised up in you like that kind of cry? Do you care? You know, 
Have you ever questioned the fatherly love of God because of the waters that your life is trying to swim in? Like there's a clear clear crisis in discipleship. You don't get to decide what the contract looks like. You sign the bottom and he fills the rest in. There's an obvious crisis in the storm. Like it is life-threatening and you let us here. So we start to doubt your ability. We start to doubt your care. We start to doubt your awareness. But then there's also a crisis when it comes to Jesus. Like the crisis is that Jesus is who is this who could command the storms and yet let us into the storm. And so look at verse 26. It says, and he said to them, why are you afraid And they would have been like, "Uh, is it not obvious? I mean, are you serious? But why are you afraid, you of little faith? And then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And so I just want to draw attention to like Jesus' question and then Jesus' action. But let's look first at his action. It comes second. But Jesus' action is Jesus stilled the storm with a word. Like the wind stopped instantly and the sea was instantly calm it actually means mega calm and so like this is where we get like you know mega death it's a band that has a whole lot of rock i mean you got megatron and so that's a bad robot with a lot of tron whatever that is and then here you've got mega calm which is like other world peace that jesus instantly brings to the storm that's threatening their lives It scared them. And it says that Jesus stood up and rebuked the winds and the sea. He didn't get up and pray and keep asking and begging his father to do something. He stood up and by his word, he rebuked the wind. And the wind and the sea knew his authority and obeyed. We're about to see, it's going to happen again, like in in the demoniacs that we're about to get to, where he rebukes the demons and they go under the pigs and cause all kinds of a mess in the ocean. But like, we're about to see that kind of authority in the same way that you would rebuke a small child who is like having a fit and going crazy, where you would like shush them and put them in the corner. He just shushed the wind and put the seas in the corner. Like they see this action that shows unbelievable power like with a word like Jesus fixes is the most threatening experience of their life with a word he brings instant mega peace to where chaos had just ensured like the question would be is there a place in your life that you need peace that you need otherworldly stillness is there a place in your life that you need the raging storms to be silenced, is there a place where you feel like Jesus is unaware or asleep? And the storms aren't always outside of us. Sometimes those storms rage inside of us and the people next to us don't even know what's going inside of our soul. Sometimes the whispering accusation stirs up all the anxiety inside of your chest and grips you. And you're wondering, my neighbor doesn't know. Does Jesus know? So Jesus rose up and he acted. He stilled the storm with a rebuke, but that was after he questioned them. And so look, Jesus' question, Jesus asked, do you trust me? 
Like he spoke to the storm of doubt that was in the disciples' heart before he stilled the storm. And so I just want you to hear that. Like before he dealt with the storm around them, he spoke to them in the storm. Look at verse 26. And he said to them, why are you afraid? You have little faith. Like there's more to this question than did you think I couldn't handle this little typhoon? Like I think he's saying something harder for us to believe when storms are raging out of control. I think Jesus is saying you should have known that I, the God who loves you, the God who is with you, like the God who controls all things will lead you into storms. You can trust me in the storms that you're in. Like Jesus spoke to them in the storm about their trust before he did anything about the storm. And I just want to ask this, like if your life feels like there's seismic activity, whether inside of you or outside of you, like if something is shaking inside of you, are you listening for what Jesus might be saying in that? Because he might want you to hear him before he does anything about that. Or or what he's going to do about that might be changing the kind of person that you are, that you have and demonstrate faith to a broken world that wants to see Jesus as a good luck charm that just makes your life go great. And I want to tell you this right now. Jesus is not a rabbit foot. Write that down. He's not a rabbit foot. He's not here to make your life go great. He's here to do what none of us can do. He's here to transfer your soul from the shore of death to the other shore of life. He's here to take you from one place to another that you can't get to on your own. He's here to be the bridge from death to life, from death to eternal life. He's here to cancel the debt sin. Jesus is here. Um, Brandon is giving me a hard time all week, actually a couple weeks now. He wanted me to use Rembrandt's uh, Christ in the Storm of the Sea of Galilee and I didn't want to do it because I felt like he was trying to control me. Um, but then, man, he won. And so, like, I, I read about this. And I actually, I didn't want to do it either. My mom's an art teacher. She, like, took oil painting in college and then realized you can't make any money with that. Um, until, if you're really good, you still can't make any money until you're dead. Um, and so she taught school. And my mom would, like, make me do stuff. Like, look at this. Hey, what do you see? I'm like, man, I don't know. I see a boat, you know. And... Uh, But man, look at this. Within this picture, you see a raging storm all around. You see a boat that's suffering and being buffeted by the waves. And you see two groups of people. Like on the far right, there's disciples and they're hovering around Jesus. And look, you see this soft glow around them. Like a peace that is encompassing the darkness. It's not bright, it's faint. But they're looking at Jesus. They're not looking at the storm. And then on the far left, you see the disciples freaking out. They're all looking at the mass. They're struggling against the storm and its effects. So much so that they don't even notice behind them the storm is breaking and the light is shining through. Like they're just saying, man, we've got to fix this. We've got to fix this. We've got to fix this. And then kind of in the middle, you see one disciple. And if you notice, he's between the two groups and he's looking directly at us. Now, I I looked at several art critics, uh, whatever you would call them, and they all talked about this disciple that's looking directly at you. He has the face of Rembrandt himself, and it's almost like it's a common practice of the air, almost like, what would you be like if you were inside the story of Jesus? And it's almost like he's looking at us and saying, who will you be in this storm? 
Will you try to fix it yourself and just work harder and white knuckle? Or will you gather around and look at Jesus, even though right now the light coming from Jesus seems fainter, it doesn't seem enough to push back all the darkness in your life, but you make a decision. Will you gather around the mass to fight the storm or will you gather around Jesus? Which one are you? Are you tirelessly working to survive the storm or are you trying to listen to Jesus in the storm? Verse 27. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? You know, earlier Matthew was calling the disciples disciples, and now he, he just calls them the men. You know, and so, I mean, it, it could be saying, like, he's contrasting them. They weren't being very disciple-ish at that moment. They're kind of failing, which I think if that's what he was doing, he would have said the weenies or something. You're like, ah, oh, man, they just kind of pansied out. Um, I think Matthew is trying to draw a contrast between the nature of us and the nature of the God-man before them. I, I, I think Matthew is using his language to say there is something different about this Jesus. Like there is something altogether different about who he is. That he steps into places of sickness and disease is cast out. He steps into places of disaster and it's no match for him. And he's about to step into places of demonic activity and it's nothing for the son of man. It's nothing for someone in the, the likeness of human that Daniel saw who is establishing an everlasting kingdom that can never be conquered, can never go away, but will be secure forever and ever. There's something different about this Jesus who we learn from the Old Testament all the way through Revelation that he is God incarnate, God made man, Emmanuel, God with us. But the crisis with Jesus is this. We expect storms to put us in danger. But the God who loves us, the God who died for us, who has promised to never leave us nor forsake us, the God who promised that all things will work out for the ultimate good and for his glory, that God will also put us into storms. Like that God has no limits. That God controls all things and he will put his children through things that feel unimaginable we expect that we can't control storms but all of a sudden we realize we can't control the God who controls the storm that we can't control and that, that that's the call of discipleship and that's the call of faith that's the call in every one of our lives that literally like this is Jesus Jesus did not enter into your life to accentuate your life your wants your beliefs or your ways the God of every storm enters in to be God. He enters in to be Lord. You don't get Jesus by saying, I'll go to church and I'll tie some money and you know, I might you know, do a little bit of this or there. You get Jesus when you hand him everything, where you hand him your ambitions, your recreations, when you hand him your identity, when you hand him your family and your hopes, when you hand him everything and you sign the bottom of the contract and you say, Lord, as you will, you fill it in. And you might be saying, why would anyone do that? Because they see Jesus and they believe that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the God-made man who entered in 
to the unsteady storms of this life to conquer the storm of sin, Satan, and death upon the cross. The storm that is waiting for every human being. And he's conquered it. And through faith, that can be accredited to you. And through faith, we sign the bottom of that contract and we don't get to fill it all in. We don't get to say these are out-of-bound clauses. We say, the God of the universe who hung on the cross, surely I can trust his good will for my life. That's what salvation is. Have you signed that? And man, if you have, every week we come together and we come to communion and we remember what secured that contract. We remember that the broken body of Jesus is what it took and the spilt blood of Jesus is what it took and it conquered the sin that damns all people and it made a way of salvation. Let me pray for us. God, Lord, we love you. And man, we need help. Lord, I have so many ifs that circle in my heart that stand up and reject, that stand up and say that's out of bounds. And Lord, I need you to conquer the storm in my soul. And so just for a second, with your heads down and your eyes closed, like I just want you to ask, like, is there actually a storm in your life, inside or outside of you? Is there a place in your life where things feel uncertain? The footing is shaking, you're just unsure if you can get through. And, and certainly we ask Jesus, man, enter in and help, save us, calm the storm. But I just want to ask, is he speaking to you first? And do you really have to lean in because of all the waves and the howling wind and the buffeting boat of your life, do you really have to lean in to hear his whisper as he speaks to you in the storm because he wants to deal with a storm inside of your soul before he deals with a storm outside of your life? Man, communion is an act of faith that we come and we say, man, day in and day out, I think there's bigger storms. But Jesus, you have already conquered the biggest storm I will ever go through. Therefore, you can be trusted. And so I trusted you the best I could last week, and I'm going to trust you this week, whatever you lead me into. Lord, we love you, and we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Come when you're ready.